Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. On the podcast today, Kentucky writer and Lexington historian Foster Ackerman Jr., president of the Lexington History Museum. He is a seventh-generation Kentuckian. Uh, He also practices law in uh, central Kentucky. He is, uh, we are so glad, a new member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. He'll also be in attendance at this year's Kentucky Book Festival with his book about horse racing. We'll talk about uh, that and more. Uh, Foster, it's so good to have you before our microphones. Well, thank you. It's very good to be here. So let's just uh, tell everybody that uh, the way they can get in touch with you um, is look you up on Google. But if they don't want to do that, they can can go to uh, kyhumanities.org and click on our Speakers Bureau, scroll down, and there you are. And there are a couple of areas that uh, you talk about, and um, we'll talk about those and more. One of those is uh, titled... Uh, why History Matters. Uh, And I'll just read the blurb, and uh, we'll start our conversation there. Originally designed for the Leadership Lexington program, this presentation discusses why an understanding and appreciation for history matters to community leaders and others. And that is a question that I often talk with historians uh, about, uh, historians that are in our Speakers Bureau, Chautauqua performers, our board members who uh, love and treasure Kentucky history as well as all history. So uh, what is the uh, your answer to why history matters? Well, to answer that, I actually will describe the last slide in my presentation about this because it, it encapsulizes the whole point. Uh, it is a photograph of a stone wall from Shaker Village beautifully restored, loose-laid stone wall. No captions, nothing else going on. And I let that rest for a moment as an image. And then I quote the old adage, never tear down a wall until you know why it was erected in the first place. Hmm. And and that's the whole message that history brings. Another historian uh, talking about the, the uh, notion of connecting dots in order to solve problems said the job of the historian is to locate the dots, Mm -hmm. and then others can come along and draw inferences uh, from those. So that's the stuff of history. That's what you look for. And you've got to look across fields. Uh, I've written a church history, and I learned along the way that church historians generally ignore politics. And political histories or civic histories generally ignore religion. Mm. But the story of a church, of a congregation, can't be told out of the context of what's happening in that particular community. Uh, Researching my book on the hidden history of horse racing, for example, I've, I've discovered the moment where three days were missed by the military historians And six weeks were missed by the equine historians. But the connected dots were when the Confederate Army occupied Lexington for six weeks, 
The fall meet was run in September 1862 and was the only thoroughbred race run under the Confederate flag anywhere. Mm. And that's just two dots that mm-hmm. appeared, one over here, one over here. Mm-hmm. Bring them together, and you've got an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, what has interested you and always been fascinating to you about history? I guess it is really just the stories. The I had a, a professor, well, I don't guess he had a, a university degree. He was an ex-military officer, a teacher in high school who told us on the first day, we're going to have open book exams. And you can get up and consult any book on these bookshelves because it won't do you any good if you haven't gotten the military and the societal and the political and the economic reasons that a battle took place or somebody got elected or didn't get elected. Uh, and And that's a story. And I thoroughly enjoy telling the stories. How do you talk to people about how they can become more interested in history? Well, you know, generally if they're talking to me, they've already become interested, mm-hmm. so I'm not working mm-hmm. with blank slates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I were to uh, confront somebody like that, I would, I would start with genealogy. I would, you know, tell me about your family. You know, what did your grandfather do? Well, why did he? Why, why, where did he do this? And that leads to the question of, well, he was in a small farming community, so he became a farmer. Mm-hmm. Well, why aren't you in that community? Well, Daddy went to the university and stayed in Lexington. Well, now suddenly you're beginning to put a personal view into the context, and then if the interest is going to be sparked, that's kind of where it happens. Did uh, were you a uh, um Amateur uh, historian, untrained as a as a small child, or did you just uh, begin your interest when when you were growing up? Well, actually, now that I think about it, my interest was probably nurtured by my mother's mother talking about her family mm-hmm. and her stories, uh, and they go back to Colonial Williamsburg and one branch even older than that. So I had an interest in these matters. There are those who, who say it is a genetic disturbance to be a historian. There's some bug in your body, mm-hmm. and if you don't have it, you go do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always enjoyed history classes in school. I majored in history, and in fact, uh, plan B was to get my master's in history if I had not been admitted to law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, law school let me mm-hmm. in, and that's a 42-year sidetrack until mm-hmm. I've come back to history now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, w- tell me about the uh, derivation of Ackerman and what uh, what what name that uh, represents. Well, nearest we can tell, uh, it is either German or Swiss. Going back, my earliest Ackerman ancestor shows up in North Carolina in the 1780s. He was not part of the Swiss colony of Newburn. Uh, may have been Palatine coming down and called to the church. He was a minister. The man, of course, is just tacked on to something else. Acker, the original word in German, describes the color okra. And there was also an Acker River. So either an, an a, a Acker 
as a description in German, is a plowed but unsown field, typically with a lot of clay. So that's where the red color comes into it. So we were either farmers or rivermen, and with the uh, early migration into the colonies here, uh, we came along with some group. Uh, I think more likely the Palatines, because that was a huge migration. Uh, the Swiss who uh, settled, settled New Bern, North Carolina, was a small group, very contained, and th- their names are all known. So it's not Ackerman. So the family moved, uh, migrated from North Carolina to what I, was still the Virginia Territory at the time. And, and then, of course, uh, you do write, and that sort of leads me into the, to the road to statehood. Um, you, uh, in the blurb, uh, have suggested that we say it took eight years, ten statehood conventions, a fight with Native Americans, and the concurrence of Congress and Virginia— and a conspiracy with Spain to achieve statehood for Kentucky. Yes. So kind of put all those dots together, if you will. Well, late 1792 was statehood. So you back up eight years from that. Lexington was a four-year-old community. Um, No, that's not right. That math is wrong. But what is significant is that Kentucky had become a net exporting region. We were now sending crops and bourbon and horses back east or to, Mississippi, to uh, New Orleans. And just as we started agitating for statehood, Spain, which at that time still owned everything west of the Mississippi, uh, it was New Spain, France got it later, and then we bought Louisiana Territory, but Spain closed the river to traffic. And that was just tightening the noose because it was a lot cheaper to flatbed float product to New Orleans than to put it on a wagon and go back through the Cumberland Gap and the mountains to Virginia, much less upstream on the Ohio to Pittsburgh. So among the four factions was a faction that wanted to secede from the United States and join Spain, either as either uh, form up an independent country with Tennessee, which had the same problems, or actually become a province uh, in New Spain under the Spanish royalty. And so there was a group advocating this. There was another group advocating land reform. There was, a, you know, there were four groups in total. And these were all patriots. These, these were, were all patriots. Mm-hmm. In fact, the lead delegate uh, was uh, General Wilkinson, who founded Frankfurt. He was on Washington staff during the war, noted a Revolutionary War general used his warrants to pick up land here. What was not known at the time was that he and three other guys were actually in the pay of Spain. They were paid foreign agents advocating for secession. <laughs> so and, they were leaving the tyranny of, um, uh, of the king, and some wanted to... Uh, get into partnership with Spain. I mean, that, that's with another true. king. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it, it was Virginia and Richmond in the capital were not addressing the needs of the West. And so the part of the argument was stated was keep our tax money at home. We can take care of ourselves better. And Wilkinson and others were saying, let's align with Spain because if we're Spanish, then we can use the river. And we get our profits back from all of our merchandise and so on. So what happened to that plan? Well, 
1790, Spain, for reasons completely unrelated to Kentucky, reopened traffic. And it was just, as Ross Perot put it, this great whooshing sound as Kentucky commerce swept down the Mississippi River again. But that was the end of the rationale for seceding. And General Wilkinson, in fact, did not attend the last two conventions. He retired to Mexico on a Spanish pension. Uh-oh. Okay. But he got some reward, didn't <laughs> got he? Got some reward, yes. Um, what about, um, uh, you mentioned, um, uh, of course, there were skirmishes of, of all sorts, I'm sure. But um, uh, the, the fight with Native Americans, if you can just paint a picture for us of what that time period must have been and and sort of where we are today and looking back at uh, at Native Americans, uh, what were they, what were the uh, tribe, uh, uh, who were they? At the time that Daniel Boone and the Long Hunters started penetrating Kentucky, the Indians had pretty much left central Kentucky and uh, there was an Iroquois, uh, two or three Iroquois settlements along the Ohio River on the Kentucky side. But they didn't like the whites coming in, and so they would periodically attempt to run everybody out. Uh, and, and, and so these fortified settlements called stations were created. There was Boone, in addition to Fort Boonesboro, uh, Daniel Boone had a station, Bryan Station, Lexington had a station. The idea was if there was a war party coming, you could quickly run behind a fortified wall and be protected while somebody got on a fast horse and ran for the militia at Fort Herrick. Uh, Lexington was established as the point of a spear to protect and alert everybody south of the Kentucky River where most of the early settlement uh, was taking place. Can you tell me what was here at the time that uh, Fort Herod was established? What, what was at the tip of the spear, Lexington? What was it a... Um... It was nothing. I mean, we, there was no settlement here. Uh, McConnell and his brother and some other men were staking claims. Uh, and so they crossed the river into the town branch, Elkhorn Valley, and were setting forth claims for themselves and speculating around the campfire this would be a nice place for a town someday. Hmm. And the word came from Fort Herod that the Battle of Lexington uh, in Massachusetts had occurred, the Revolutionary War was initiated. Out in the West, free-thinking guys very much wanted to get rid of the king, so this was good news. And the decision was made at that time to name what would become the town Lexington, not after the city in Massachusetts, but after the battle that initiated the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. The next year was a bad year for Indian runs, and one uh, historian says there wasn't a white man found in Kentucky the following year. And that, that period would be what again, what year? 1776. Uh, and and, and, the and literally, are you see, is he saying, establishing that, that there were no white settlers? Nobody, no white settlers living in Kentucky in 1776 because the Indians were being prompted and led by British officers to attack the Western settlements. So we had a whole war going over here in the West that had nothing to do with Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by late 1776, 1777, that had pretty much been repelled. The British had retreated to the, the coast to make their stands there. And the, the Boone and McConnell and others 
swept back in. And at that point is when uh, Colonel Patterson was sent with 24 men from Fort Herod to physically pick a spot and build a blockhouse that was the first construct in what became Lexington. And for our listeners who are familiar with Lexington, that's roughly the intersection of Mill Street and Main Street. Hmm. Who were the principals, uh, individuals who were involved in statehood? Oh, gosh. Well, you, you, uh, John Bradford, mm-hmm. who started the Kentucky Gazette, the first newspaper west of the mountains, was uh, encouraged by the statehood faction to start the newspaper as an advocacy piece for statehood. So mm-hmm. while it carried news and ads and everything else, its editorial stance was pro-statehood. But you had the Todds, you had you know, uh, Mary Todds a, a couple of generations prior to her, mm-hmm. the Pattersons, I mean, a lot of these old mm-hmm. Central Kentucky mm-hmm. names, Wilkinson. All the conventions were held in Danville, which was the county mm-hmm. seat for Kentucky County. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you just, I mean, I, I think there were like 60 delegates or so to each of these conventions, and they were spread amongst merchants, lawyers, military officers. And, and tell me again, uh, because Danville at the time, Nate, was was it established as the capital? No. Okay, it was not called the capital. It calls itself the capital. There's a marker. Uh-huh. But the truth of the matter is they were the first courthouse, yes, because that's where the county court was held. But when the convent, when the the deal was reached with Virginia and the United States under the new constitution— because part of the delay was the change from the Articles to the Constitution. Lexington was designated as the provisional capital. And June 2nd, uh, the legislature met in Lexington. The governor was sworn in. The court was sworn in. And a committee was appointed to establish the permanent capital. And Frankfurt made a better offer than anybody else. Well, uh that indeed is why your interest has grown over the years, why so many people um, are fascinated by, by the study of history. And I, I don't know, historians of, of some renown, uh, we all can name them uh, going back uh, generations, but uh, there seems to be a, a real resurgence in the interest in history uh, today. Um, you are also the author, and as I mentioned earlier, Foster Ackerman Jr. will be at our Kentucky Book Festival, uh, the book fair on November the 16th with his new publication, Hidden History of Horse Racing in Kentucky. Um, you're also available through our Speakers Bureau to uh, talk about uh, that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book and your research and what you found. Well, the first thing I want to say, I want to give a shout out to the Keeneland Library. Uh, absolutely beautiful facility, great staff. I, I alerted them to my subject matter a couple of weeks ahead of time, and I got out there. They had a cart mm-hmm. all filled with books and files and a table reserved for me. Beautiful experience to research. Uh, this this tells a variety of different stories. Uh, it's not a it's not a narrative. It's not a chronological history of horse racing. It takes different topics. For example. Uh, I think I have identified almost all of the colonial racetracks in Kentucky. Uh, everything from racing on Main Street in Lexington to the fact that Mary Todd's great uncle, Colonel John Todd, had a quarter mile sprint track mm. 
between Short and Third Streets along the Georgetown Road in Lexington. Goodness. Uh, you, those who follow horse racing know that we run counterclockwise on a track. There was, and the man's name eludes me now, great revolutionary war hero, thousands of acres of land, established arguably the first formal oval track in Kentucky. The English run clockwise, and he was so anti-English, he ran his races the other way. Yeah. And that's where our tradition of running uh-huh. counterclockwise comes. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the uh, uh, things I discovered is that the, the uh, trophy for the Preakness, and the original trophy is four feet of solid sterling silver designed by Tiffany of New York. Mm. It was a traveling trophy, and uh, Mrs. The, the Vanderbilt Stables won the race in the early 50s, and she didn't want the responsibility for taking that home. So it became, it's now in the Baltimore uh, Museum of Art, and smaller replicas are given out. But that trophy originated in Jefferson County, Kentucky, at, at a track that uh, started in 1850. It closed for the Civil War. The guy who won the race the last time buried it in his pastures to preserve it mm-hmm. with his own silver, dug it back up, and brought it back to the track. Track closed in 1870. It was Woodlawn Park. The winners were two brothers from New York. They carried the trophy back, and with no more races at Woodlawn, they just they kept the spirit. They turned it over to another track. It traveled for a while until, until it settled in it for the Belmont. So that's the kind of interesting little tidbit. You know, I, with one exception, I don't talk about horses. Uh, the one horse I talk about uh, is Henry Clay's stallion buzzard, like the bird mm-hmm. of, of prey. Uh, according to a local equine lawyer, Richard Vemont, uh, Henry Clay and four partners did the first modern stallion syndicate. Hmm. Typically, if you had a stallion, you bred to your own mares, maybe your neighbor, you know. These guys invested in the stallion for the purpose of selling breedings to other people, and that's the current model. They brought him in from Virginia. Every horse in the 2018 Kentucky Derby Every horse, including Justify, the Triple Crown winner, counts Buzzard in his or her ancestry. You're kidding me. That is exactly right. Henry Clay was a better breeder than he was a politician. (laughs) So there's a bloodline that can be directly traced back? To Buzzard from every horse that left the gate in May of 2018. I I haven't researched this year's run yet. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing uh, stat. Um, Foster, let me ask you, um, at the time that uh, you, you, were, you were speaking about Keeneland, but you also mentioned the uh, uh, Churchill Downs, where did Kentucky find itself with those tracks and probably others that are not still in existence compared to uh, Saratoga or Del Mar or something else on the West Coast? Uh, were we early on uh, racing here in Kentucky or did we follow others? We were very early. Actually, racing is very, very early in colonial history. Uh, mostly quarter-mile sprints or sometimes two- and three-mile cross-country races, but not ovals because ovals required a lot of land, and that you had to clear a lot and you had to maintain the track. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, the first oval track in Lexington was in the early 1800s. Uh, there was a jockey club 
formed in Lexington to put out rules of racing, mm-hmm. including a uh, requirement to wear silk jackets. Uh, it was started before the New York Jockey Club, uh, which is the antecedent of the National Jockey Club today, which governs the sport. So racing happened early. It was America's first sport. Anybody could participate, whether you were racing your horse or rooting or betting on somebody else's horse. Uh, And tracks were all over the place. Obviously, uh, our tracks here in Lexington and later Louisville predated anybody west of us. During the time that the progressive movement was attempting to clean up society, which led to prohibition on the sale of alcohol, they were also attacking uh, paramutual wagering and outlawing gambling at racetracks. Well, once gambling disappears, the profit margin for the racetrack disappears. And at one point, there were only four racetracks still in business, two in like two in Kentucky, Churchill and Lexington, and two in Illinois, because those were the only two states who did not prohibit paramutual wagering. And in Kentucky, we won by one vote. Mm. The legislature passed a bill prohibiting it. The governor vetoed, and the veto was upheld by a one-vote margin. And so racing continued in those two states where it was outlawed in other states. Well, it's a fascinating uh, read. It's available now, but we're going to uh, uh, be honored to have you at the Kentucky uh, Book Fair on November 16th. You'll be uh, participating in some of our uh, main stage events as well as signing books for any uh, and all who yes, want to come out and say hello to you and, and talk history. We always, history books uh, of this uh, nature really do well at the book fair, so we hope you have a lot of people out there. Uh, let me ask you about um, the, uh, the the jockeys. Uh, g- g- give us a description. Uh, were there more uh, uh, Negro, African-American, uh, now black jockeys uh, in that era than we have today? Tremendous number. I mean, black jockeys were the first professional athlete class in the United States post-Civil War. Uh, they Once they were free and able to choose their own mounts and follow the racing from track to track to track, uh, they earned the, the best ones earned the equivalent of NBA salaries uh, for their time uh, and would, would ride 200 races over the course of a year, which is far more. Of course, horses individually were raced more and there were more races. Then the Jim Crow era comes in and what had been a farm, almost like a a baseball farm league, where you would have a black trainer who would recognize a, a small black boy who seemed to have talent around horses, train him to ride. He would go have a racing career, retire, and become a trainer and pick up the next generation. Mm-hmm. The, the migration from the farms to the cities interrupted that, and then the white trainers started giving preference to white riders. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite jockey that I write about is Jimmy Winkfield. He was born in Fayette County, got into racing. He was the last African-American to win the Kentucky Derby. He won it twice in 1903-1904, but he was forced out. And like so many of the black jocks, they went to Europe to ride, where there was not the prejudice. 
Winkfield ended up being the lead jockey for Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. <laughs> he lived on, in an apartment across from the Kremlin. He had married a Russian duchess, had his own household staff, and of course all the stable staff. And this little event called the Russian Revolution came about. <laughs> and the Bolsheviks didn't take well to thoroughbred racing and that sort of rich man's sport. So Jimmy had to leave. Now, he had won the Russian Triple Crown, uh, the Warsaw Derby, the Moscow Derby, all these big races in Europe. He and his family and the stable hands led 260 of the Tsar's finest horses across Europe to Normandy, France. And by the time he got there, all the Romanovs had been assassinated, and he had nobody to give the horses back to. So he kept them and built a successful racing and breeding operation of his own. Yeah. Well, how, did he ever come back to Kentucky? He came back to visit, uh, got trapped, being refused uh, to be allowed into one of the Louisville hotels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, somebody had story to, too. Somebody yeah. had to speak for him and, yeah. and let him in, and that just soured him. He went back to sure. France, and, and I don't believe he returned again. Yeah. Well, Foster Ackerman, Jr., uh, a Lexington native, a lawyer, uh, president of the Lexington History Museum, and... Uh, several other things, but also uh, the author of um, a new book, which is going to be at our Kentucky Book Fair in November, Hidden History of Horse Racing in Kentucky. And um, uh, you'll also be participating with us. Uh, This has been a a great conversation, and and, uh, we hope that if you have other details and uh, interesting stories, you can make a return visit someday, and we'll talk about this some more. Well, I'd be happy to, and I look forward to being part of the Speakers Bureau. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.